So this morning we continue with uh, more resurrection, more Easter theme as we continue in John chapter 20. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice to come to Easter last week and then not be finished with Easter this week. Um, And in fact, to have been working on that for three weeks even prior to Easter. So we know that on that First Resurrection Sunday, when evening had come on the first day of the week, the disciples were all gathered together in one place for the second time that day. They had, they had already been gathered together in the morning because they had heard two separate reports, one from Mary Magdalene and then another report from the other women. Um, Mary, the mother of James, and uh, Joanna, and Salome, and some other women. And both of these reports had said that these, these women had not only seen a vision of angels and heard a message from the angels, but they had seen the resurrected Jesus himself and that he had spoken to them. Now, we know John and Peter were also there at the empty tomb, but not at the same time. And we know that they had not seen any angels. They had not seen Jesus. So whatever John and Peter thought about these women's report, um, the rest of the disciples didn't believe them. They thought it must be nonsense. So after that, after they've had this report, this initial report, and Peter and John, of course, they'd been there, but they didn't see anything that the women had seen, the group seems to have disbanded again. They, they had dispersed, at least some of them. Now, <clears throat> later on, uh, they're, they're back together again because Jesus has now appeared to Peter as well. So Peter, no doubt, goes to them all and says, no, no, the women are right, right? I have seen Jesus too. Now everyone's together again. They've got these three independent reports of having seen Jesus. And then... To top it off, while they're all together discussing these things and wondering what it all must mean, the two disciples, Cleopas and his companion, who had left earlier that day, um, they were there in the first group. Then they had left, and they had been on their way back to Emmaus. Jesus joins them on their way and talks with them and then makes himself known to them in the breaking of bread after they arrived. So now they have four reports of someone having seen Jesus. And this whole, you can imagine, the whole group of disciples. I mean, you can't hardly imagine. They're discussing, they're talking, they're wondering, what is this about? What does this mean? And for most of them, they've still not seen Jesus. Four reports, but most of them have not seen him. They now believe that Jesus is resurrected. And I just want to say, at least they believe in theory. You know, you you can believe something, but you believe it in theory. They don't yet, though, fully understand what it means. The report from Mary, Mary Magdalene, would have given them a lot to think about. Because remember what, what Mary went back and told them is that Jesus said to me, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. So, okay, what does that mean? So he's raised and now he's ascending. So they they have to process 
what, what is this about? We take so much for granted, right? Because we, we have the whole Bible written. We've had years, thousands of, 2,000 years now of people growing and learning, and we benefit from it all. But at that first day, it's hard to imagine. You could say, really, the learning curve that was going on at that point. So they have Mary's report. Then there's the report from Cleopas and his companion, which would have given them more to think about. Jesus had said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it, so the learning curve was partly their own problem, and partly it was, yes, that this is new. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we would like to think, of course, that the disciples can figure it all out in a day or a couple of hours, but we know better than that, don't we? And we know that we are slow of mind and slow of heart so often to truly believe, to truly get things, to truly grasp things. How, how patient our Lord is with us for as slow as we can be. In fact, we know that for the next 40 days, not to mention a couple of hours, for 40 days, Jesus is going to be appearing to the disciples over and over, speaking to them of things about the kingdom. At this point, the disciples don't see any kingdom. Like, what? Right? They're just trying to process Jesus is alive. But what they're going to have to come to see is not only is he alive, but he is king. And he is establishing now a kingdom that will persevere and endure and last until the end and even in even into eternity what a what a what a revolution in their thinking to go from utter despair and defeat to realizing that no this is the ultimate triumph that's how do you get from here to there right well certainly grasping that jesus is risen but what does that mean so it's in this context that we pick up now in chap- verse 19 of John chapter 20. Finally, finally, after all these reports have come to them, now they all get to be confronted with the risen Jesus. So while it was evening, on that first day, that first day of the week, and while the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Or we could say simply, Peace to you. I can't get it down to two words. In the Greek, it's just two words. So Jesus comes to the disciples in that, in that room and he speaks simply two words. We translate with three or four. The disciples, they may believe Jesus is risen, but they're still hiding out. They may believe Jesus is risen, but they don't understand what it means and therefore they're still afraid. Really, that's the story of our lives. 
Every time we're truly afraid in the sense of fearful, it's because we don't understand. It's while they're gathered fearfully in secret. John says, behind closed doors, that Jesus came and stood in their midst. The obvious implication is that Jesus didn't come in the normal way. What's the normal way you come to someone behind closed doors? You you knock on the door and they let you in, right? Instead, Jesus comes in some other wondrous way. And I say wondrous way because it's not just for to say that's cool, right? That's That's not ever what this is. This is wondrous. That Jesus in his resurrection body can come to us like that. That he can come to them like that and suddenly be there standing in their midst. So there's a sense in which, I, I love to think about it, we know that we do not expect, Jesus, Jesus appeared to people for 40 days, and then he ascended finally, and we do not expect more appearances like that. But I just want to say that Jesus is not a long way away in the sense of it would take him a long time to get to us. Think about that. Jesus in his resurrection body, physical body, can, if he so chooses, Be here now, in the flesh, in a moment. In the flesh. This is the beauty, this is the wonder of the resurrection of many. The obvious implication then is that Jesus stands in their midst suddenly, but John never spells that out. And one of the marks of the authenticity of the Gospels is they never go into... um, They never stoop to kind of sensationalizing Jesus suddenly appearing like that. Oh, look, that was so amazing. No, they're reserved when it comes to mysteries like these. Luke tells us the disciples were startled and they were frightened, as I think you and I would be if someone suddenly appeared in our midst. Um, They thought they were seeing a spirit. So yeah, it looked like Jesus, maybe to them, I don't know, but, but, but they thought it must be a spirit, because who else can appear suddenly like that? Only a spirit. John emphasizes, John never mentions this new fear. John never tells us how scared they were this was a ghost. He only tells us what Luke does not tell us. So John's emphasis is this, the disciples' fear of the Jews. He never, he never mentions the disciples' fear of, oh, here's a ghost, here's a spirit in front of us. John simply says, they were afraid of the Jews, and that's why they're meeting, in your handout, in secret, behind closed doors. What he emphasizes is their fear of the enemies of Jesus and their authority. See, we have, a, we have kind of an inferiority complex as Christians sometimes, that, that we're just kind of little guys and the losers. And, and that it's everyone else who has the power. And everyone else who has the authority. The authority to, in this case, to arrest the disciples. To put them in prison. Even to put them to death. And we can imagine this, can't we? I can imagine this fear. You'd almost feel stupid not to be fearful. Because look what they just did to Jesus. Now what do you think they might do to you? Who were the followers, the disciples of Jesus. 
Maybe we can identify with this kind of fear again today. Because especially in our increasingly wicked and hostile culture, we feel like, at times, the losers. The, the inferiority complex people, right? And sometimes we get, we get defiant, but it's just to cover up our insecurities, right? Sometimes we get angry and bold and full of bravado, but is it not oftentimes to cover up those insecurities? The disciples are in an insecure place. They're full of fear. But John emphasizes this fear so that we will grasp more fully and love more fully the greeting of Jesus. Jesus came and stood in their midst. And I just, I love the irony of it because, you know, they've got all their doors shut, which is to keep all the enemies out. Well, who else would the doors keep out? Keep Jesus out too. Except for the fact that Jesus is not bothered by closed doors any longer. And so here comes Jesus into the midst of this terrified and yet excited group of disciples still meeting behind closed doors. And here he is suddenly in their midst. And his first words to them are simply, peace be with you. Never, never were any words more full of significance than these words. Spoken, and I want to I put it in, if you can put it into perspective. These words spoken at this moment, at this particular moment in history, okay, by this Jesus now resurrected from the dead. Put all that together. These words spoken at this moment in history by this Jesus now resurrected from the dead. Never did any words hold more meaning. Peace be with you. Isn't that a greeting that, that, that literally resounds through all the centuries until this very day? At one level, um, and, you know, to fully appreciate this moment, we have to see that at one level this was just the common Jewish greeting. Now, it had, it had, it had deep meaning to it, but it, it's, it's, it could get trite. You know, it can be like us saying, hi, how are you doing? Or, I hope, hey, I hope you're doing good. Right? That kind of a thing. So, in Judges chapter 19, there was an old man, and he found this traveling Levite in the city square. And what did he say to him? Didn't know him, didn't know him from anyone else, but here's a stranger. And so what does he say? Peace be to you. Peace be to you. Only let me take care of all that you lack. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he invites him in for hospitality. His first words to him, peace be to you. David sent messengers to Nabal, and he told him, tell Nabal, have a long life. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I'm not saying that David was insincere, but when Nabal proved himself to be a fool, the next thing David did was send his messengers to wipe Nabal off the face of the earth, right? So there's a sense in which David says, peace be to you, because that was the appropriate, normal thing to say. And yet spoken by the, if I was a pious Jew, 
And if I was really a God-fearing Jew, then these words express a desire that the one to whom they're addressed, so if I say to you, peace, peace to you, that means I desire that you would experience the true well-being of God's covenantal blessing and favor. Right? God makes covenants with us. And so I'm not just asking that you'll experience the blessing of the sun shining on you and the rains watering your crops. He gives that to everyone. I'm asking that you would know the fullness of God's blessings in his covenant. That they would just come to you and wash over you and be yours in fullest measure. And that you would have that, that well-being and that wholeness. The wholeness that comes from God's favor being poured out upon you. But sometimes, now when I say peace to you, I have no power to give it to you. It's just my wish. I just wish that for you. And you, like, you, you're, you appreciate that, right? right? I, I desire this for you. And that's nice. I can't give it to you. So what's the difference when an angel says peace to you? Or when Yahweh himself uses this greeting? What is that? look like? What does that mean? Daniel chapter 10. And the angel said to Daniel, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Gather strength and be strong. And then in Judges chapter 6, Yahweh said to Gideon, peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Oh, What would it be like to hear God himself say to me, peace to you? Whoa, what does that mean? The difference is huge. There is all the difference in the world between me saying peace to you and God saying peace to you. Now it's not just a wish. God is not wishing that for you. When God says to you, peace to you, it is in your handout an announcement. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation of good news. God comes to Daniel and he comes to Gideon, in other words, not with death and judgment. Because when when we see God or God reveals himself, the natural response of human is to say, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. And so when I'm filled with that kind of a fear, God makes this announcement to me. And he says, no, you're not a dead man. You're a man to whom I am bringing my salvation. Peace to you. So what does it mean in your handout? What does it mean? When the risen Jesus, when Christ the Messiah, he comes and he stands in the midst of these disciples who are all meeting behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. And he says to them, peace be with you. Is that a generic greeting? Is it just like the thing to say? No. Is, it, is Jesus just expressing a wish? He's saying, I wish you guys wouldn't be so scared. Right. Or I wish you guys would, would, know, would, would be at peace. No, it's not what he's doing. It's not a wish. It's not like, you guys, you guys should not be so afraid. Be at peace, right? 
Now, for the Jew, this is in your hand. This is an announcement. Jesus is announcing something. He is proclaiming something at this moment. So, for the Jew, what's the Hebrew word for peace? Like, if we don't know any Hebrew, there's one Hebrew word. One Hebrew word. Most of us probably know. Shalom, right? Shalom. Peace. And that was a beautiful word. A beautiful word. that It summed up, again, the true well-being. I don't know how else to put it, but you know when life is just right. Life is good. Not, not, in the, not necessarily in the worldly sense, but in the deeply satisfying sense of well-being, of wholeness. Um, that was summed up with this word shalom. And it was the well-being and wholeness of the righteous who experienced God's salvation. That's, that's the key. It's this peace is the experience of those who know God's salvation. Salvation, not just negatively in terms of deliverance from danger or from one's enemies. That's how we think of salvation. It's like, I don't have to go to hell, right? Or, or salvation, meaning I'm delivered from some danger or deadly menace. But salvation in the Bible is so much more than that. It's God saying, I have saved you from all of that, and I have saved you unto and into all the wonderful riches of my love and favor and, and kindness to you. That's salvation. Don't limit God's salvation. Let's see its wholeness. And so we think, first of all, of the priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Listen to this now. Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you, let's sum it all up in one word, peace. Peace, then, in your handout, is an all-encompassing word. And this is important, because when we think of peace, we think primarily of, ah, I just feel happy. I feel good. I don't, I don't feel any angst right now. And then tomorrow you might not feel like that. right? But this piece that we're talking about is, is not primarily how you feel. It is not a subjective feeling because it cannot be taken away from you. It does not go away. Well, we'll see. We'll see that it doesn't. It's rather the whole objective possession of God's salvation. If, if you have God's salvation, brothers and sisters, then what do you have? Peace. You have it. If you have salvation, you have peace. It's a possession. It's, an, it's a condition of wholeness. I am whole. Now, I don't, I don't always live in the reality of that. But I am whole. I have ultimate well-being. You look at, I, I'm a living, walking testimony to the fact that I have ultimate well-being, but I don't always live in the reality of that. But I have it. I have it. I have peace. Peace is mine. 
And so the psalmist writes in Psalm 29, Yahweh sat enthroned over the flood. Indeed, Yahweh sits as king forever. Yahweh will give strength to his people. Yahweh will bless his people with peace. Shalom. Psalm 37, yet a little while the wicked man will be no more. He will look carefully at his place and he will not be there. But the lowly, the humble, the righteous, they will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant peace. I, I just, I, are you getting like the meaning of that word? It's so much more than we make it out to be today, the way we use it. We're reminded in these verses that God's salvation and God's peace don't come to the wicked. They only come to the righteous. Isaiah 48, there is no peace for the wicked, says Yahweh. No peace. So if peace, now this is where I'm going to get, this is, this is like the hinge to the sermon. So this is where we're going to make a little transition. If peace is a word that sums everything up, okay, it sums up your whole possession of God's salvation, then we have to be able to see now how this peace depends ultimately upon the unfolding, the progressive throughout history unfolding of God's salvation. Okay, I feel like that's maybe a bit tricky for a moment. Right? So if we have, if peace is what I have when God's salvation is poured out on me, then when God's salvation is poured out one way and in the Old Testament, but then it's poured out more fully in the New Testament, what happens in terms of our experience of peace? Well, the peace is elevated. The peace is transformed. It gets a new character because the fullness of God's salvation has come. So let, let me put it like this. And this is important for us to understand what Jesus is doing at this moment with the disciples. In the Old Covenant, you had this sporadic, on-again, off-again peace of God's Old Covenant people, Israel. Because, after all, I mean, one minute they're obeying God's righteous commands, and they have peace, right? Abundance, prosperity, well-being. And then, they're breaking God's law, they're worshiping idols, and now they don't have peace. They have lack, they have famine, they have want. They're being invaded by enemies. And so this, this sporadic, on-again, off-again peace of God's covenant people in the Old Testament was just a type. It wasn't, it wasn't the ultimate peace. It was a shadow of that true, and here's, here's that word, that true eschatological. I'm hoping that word might be becoming beautiful to you. That eschatological peace. What do I mean by eschatological? I mean that, I mean, I'm referring to the final age, to this age of the Spirit, to the day when God's salvation comes in fullness. That eschatological peace that awaited God's people under the new covenant. What kind of peace would that be? 
It wouldn't be a peace you have one day and the next day it's gone because now everyone's worshiping idols. This was going to be a permanent, it was going to be an everlasting peace. Why? Because it came along with God's eschatological salvation. The fullness of salvation brings the fullness of what? Peace. A salvation that is permanent and eternal and everlasting brings what kind of peace? A peace that is permanent and everlasting and eternal. The possession of God's people forever and ever and ever. To put it another way, the ushering in of the fullness of God's salvation through Jesus the Messiah means the ushering in of the fullness of God's peace for a truly righteous and obedient covenant people. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. In another place, Isaiah speaks of the judgment that God's disobedient Old Covenant people are going to experience until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. The wilderness becomes a fruitful orchard. The fruitful orchard is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will live in the fruitful orchard and the work of righteousness will be peace. And the service of righteousness, quietness and security forever. Then my people will live in a habitation of peace and secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places. Now, let me just remind us briefly here that there is an already and a not yet, right? I'm not worried about the not, uh, about the not yet. We're talking about the already right, the, right now this morning. Isaiah 55, 12. For you will go out with gladness and be led forth with peace. Are you giving that word its full weight? Peace is like a heavy word. Peace is a... There's a phrase that I don't know how often it's used, but peace is a pregnant word. It's, it's full. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isaiah 60, instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. And instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your overseers and righteousness your taskmasters. Do you see how peace and righteousness go together? All under the umbrella of God's salvation. Isaiah 66, for thus says Yahweh, behold, I stretch out peace to her like 
a river. You, you should see now, this is not just some nice, subjective, happy feeling we have. No, this is an objective fact. What we have, what he has given to us, what is yours. Whether you're living like it or not, it's yours in Christ Jesus. Or this is what was promised. The glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. We see then how, how whenever God's eschatological salvation was going to come. And brothers and sisters, has it come yet? It has already. And not yet. Right. But whenever that was going to come, through the promised Messiah, it was going to mark the coming of God's everlasting eschatological peace for a truly righteous and obedient people. But of course, we couldn't earn this peace by our own self-righteousness. This righteous people was going to be the sovereign creation of God's saving power. So two more passages to read. One in Isaiah and one in Jeremiah. Isaiah 57, because of the iniquity of his greedy gain, I was angry and struck him. What does that mean? No peace. Right? When, when God is angry with us and strikes us, there's no peace. That's no peace for the wicked. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways. He cannot get anything by his own righteousness, because all he is is wicked. And then what does God say? These amazing, miraculous, wondrous words. But I will heal him. I will lead him and pay him and his mourners in full with comfort. Creating, what is God going to do? Creating the praise of the lips. Peace. Peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. Jeremiah 33, behold, I will bring to Jerusalem health and healing and I will heal them and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will return the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. God is going to do it. He's going to bring this salvation. He's going to impart this peace and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me and it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and beauty before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will be in dread and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Okay, you got that? You got that whole world of Old Testament? In light of all that, I ask you now, and you know, this is not like, oh good, I can put the, I can put the right answer down. This is for your heart to be like, oh, Okay, here's the question. What does it mean when the risen Jesus, when Christ the Messiah comes at this moment, stands in the midst of the disciples meeting behind closed doors for fear of the Jews and says to them, peace be with you. We know That is no generic greeting 
Neither is Jesus simply wishing something for them or hoping something for them. On the lips of the resurrected Jesus, that's an announcement. It's a proclamation to them. It's the first, it's like the first preaching of the gospel. It's, it's the first preaching of the gospel in two words. Peace to you. That's what it is. And what peace is this? What peace is this? It's not, it's not a subjective feeling of peace. Feel happy. Yes, but that's not primarily what it is. Neither is this that old, typological, sporadic, on-again, off-again peace that God's people had under the old covenant. No, this is that this is this is that everlasting eschatological peace that accompanies the arrival of God's eschatological salvation and is poured out now upon a truly righteous and obedient people. This is the peace Jesus in your handout announces now to his disciples. Let me put it this way. He's not saying to them in the first place, may you feel at peace. This is what he's saying. Peace is now yours forever and ever and ever. That's an announcement. And you might not get it. You might not feel at peace. But it's a fact. If death itself has been conquered. Now I'm going to have a lot of ifs here. And I want you to think about it just logically. And let's let our hearts follow the logic. If death itself has been conquered, really? If the devil himself has been cast out, if we have now been justified and reconciled to God, if we have been created anew in righteousness and holiness of the truth, and if we have as our present possession eternal life, living, dwelling within us, and if we have all these things through our risen and ascended Savior and King Jesus Christ, then we have, in the very fullest sense of the word, peace. It's ours. Ultimate wholeness and well-being. But the disciples can't immediately grasp the full import of these words. I don't know what they heard when they heard Jesus say, peace be with you. Maybe they just heard the generic greeting. Maybe they didn't hear anything at all because they were so scared that they were seeing a ghost. We remember from Luke's gospel that they were startled. And so added to their fear of the Jews, they have this fear of seeing an apparition. So we go on to read in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But I still, I'm still, i a little skeptical still. Well, they're all excited now. Why? Kind of like Mary Magdalene. There's Jesus. He's back. But they don't get it yet. Do they really understand? So now, now they're convinced. 
Okay, they got over their first, that other fright that this is a ghost. They're convinced this is really Jesus in the flesh that we're seeing in front of us. Now that they're convinced of that, Jesus says in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Why does he repeat the words? Because they didn't get what they mean yet. What the resurrection really means. Guys, if, if we're, to the extent that we live in fear, to the extent that we have an inferiority complex, that we have a defeatist attitude, to that extent, we have not comprehended the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have not grasped it. In fact, not only does Jesus repeat the same greeting, like, you know, it would be, be like weird if it's generic greeting. If I said, hi, how are you doing? You're scared. And, said, and then I said again, hi, how are you doing? That's, that's ridiculous. Why does Jesus repeat the greeting? Because he's proclaiming the gospel. That's what he's doing. So the next week, one week later, when he comes back into the same room and the doors are still shut, and Thomas is there, what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he comes to them again? You can guess. Peace be with you. How gracious is our Lord, brothers and sisters, that a week later, they're still behind closed doors, and Jesus comes and he still says to them, peace be with you. Because things haven't changed in a week. They might not have got it, but the realities have not changed. Jesus is brought to us. Jesus has brought to me, and I invite you to say it for yourself. Jesus has brought to me that eschatological peace, which is the result of that eschatological salvation, which I have now in him. Because this peace is now mine, there's no place left in me for fear. Yes, I do fear. But, but there's no reasonable place left for it. And here we see then the fulfillment of the words Jesus spoke to his disciples three days earlier on the night before his crucifixion. Peace, I leave with you. Now when he says peace, he means everything in the Old Testament. You've got to have the whole, whole Old Testament background to get that word. Peace, I leave with you as I go now to bring in God's salvation. My peace I give to you. Not for you to to have just when you feel it, but to be your everlasting possession. Your everlasting possession. Do not let your heart, not as the world gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. See, the possession of peace means that we ought to live and act like people who have it. John 16 says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Again, the possession of peace. In the world you have tribulation, but in me you have peace. Therefore, act like you have peace. Take courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world. What does that do for an inferiority complex? And so we see that this 
eschatological peace that we have as our present possession is in your handout. Now the antidote to all turmoil and fear. And we need an antidote, don't we? Because apart from the antidote, we can be consumed by it. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And this eschatological peace that's our present possession is also in your handout the source of a joyful courage and boldness. Take courage. I have overcome the world. But you've got you to gotta do something with this courage and boldness. What do you do with it? Peace be with you, therefore, is first of all a proclamation of good news. Jesus is announcing the gospel. He's announcing the gospel to them. Secondarily, it's the foundation and the whole substance of our mission in and to the world. So these disciples are about to be transformed, right? This is why Jesus says to them, he says to them, peace be with you, you guys who are hiding out behind closed doors because you're so terrified of the power of the world and the authority that the Jews have to do bad things to you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Right? What a, what a transformation. What a change is about to take place. What a change this peace is about to work in the disciples. Let me repeat the ifs again and go one step further. If death itself has been conquered and the devil himself been cast out, if we've now been justified and reconciled to God so that every accusation the devil brings against me falls on deaf ears, right? And if we've been created anew in righteousness and holiness of the truth so that I am now truly righteous through faith in Jesus, and if we have as our present possession eternal life. And if we have all these things, it's not, it's not just enough, oh, I have all these things, but no, I have all these things in and through my risen and my ascended Savior and King, Jesus Christ. If that's a fact, if that's real, then what room can there be in my heart for fear? How can I not then be filled instead with a joyful courage and boldness? This isn't just a pep talk. I leave it to you to ask yourself the same question. If those things are true and if you believe them, what room is there for fear? It's because of this peace that Jesus has preached to us. And it's in the boldness that this peace imparts to us that we can now preach the good news of this peace to others. Do you see where this is going? I love it. It's so beautiful. Jesus comes to these cowering disciples, scared, afraid, fearful, cloistered behind their closed doors. First, he announces the gospel to them. Peace. And then on the basis of that announcement, he sends them out of that room behind closed doors. He says, this is not where you're going to belong. I'm going to send you out. As the victors. I'm sending you out as the people who have triumphed. So returning again to Isaiah, we read in Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace. 
And that's why I titled this sermon, Announcing Peace. Because Jesus announces it to us. And then our privilege is to go in the power of that peace and announce it to others. How beautiful are feet of those who announce peace, who proclaim good news of good things, and then look, who announce salvation. And who say to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh returns to Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This is looking ahead to the eschatological day of salvation. Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. That is the impetus for our preaching the gospel. In the sight of all the nations. That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation and therefore know the peace of our God. These are the verses then that Isaiah, in Isaiah that we see being fulfilled when Jesus announces to the disciples peace. How beautiful are the feet of that ultimate one who announced peace on that day, first day that he came back and appeared to those disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me to preach to you the good news of this peace, I send you to preach to all the nations, to the ends of the earth, the good news of this peace. And when Jesus had said this, he breathed. He he exhaled deeply. It does not say he breathed on them. That might be implied, but everywhere else, if it is, it says it explicitly. Here it just says he breathed. Apparently the idea of he inhaled and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. I just want to get, jump ahead to the main point. I want to ask you, who has the authority here? Is it the Jews who can imprison? Or is it the disciples who announce forgiveness or who announce no forgiveness? See, Jesus is working to change their thinking. They need a revolution. I don't believe there's a sense in which the disciples actually received the Holy Spirit at that moment. I don't think they got anything at that moment. You might disagree, and that's fine. I don't, there's reasons I don't believe they did. I believe Jesus is symbolically, he's symbolically foreshadowing the day of Pentecost, when Jesus will pour the Holy Spirit out upon the disciples. And I believe this for a number of reasons, but one is because Luke gives us Jesus' own explanation in chapter 24. Jesus said to the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead. This is in the room. When Jesus came to them behind closed doors, this is what he's saying to them. And that the third day he would rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, that peace would be proclaimed to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, 
You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in Luke, he promises it. In John, he, he um, visually enacts, it pictures what is to come. And if these are the words he, words he spoke when he appeared to them on the day of his resurrection, let's skip ahead to the words he speaks on the day he ascends into heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. Remember in Isaiah, when God said, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce peace? He said that was going to come to all the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And here we see that being fulfilled in the coming of the Spirit and the announcement of the peace that Christ has accomplished. We know that these verses, they have a primary application to the apostles. The apostles, the disciples there, they were eyewitnesses. They saw all this stuff firsthand. But they have a secondary application to you and to me, to all of us. Because this peace has been preached to you, and it's now our present possession in Christ, we can therefore courageously and without fear preach this peace to others in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way that we do that, Jesus says, is by proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Isn't that the source of all our peace? It's knowing that I, a sinner, have been reconciled to God, have been welcomed into his family, made a citizen of his kingdom, and have the hope of eternal life. When Jesus says, just to sum this up simply, if you forgive the sins of any, he's obviously not saying, I have the authority to actually, me, forgive your sins, to absolve you of your sin. He's saying, he's saying, if you forgive, when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they have been forgiven them, he's speaking of the authority that he has given to us to announce to all who repent of their sins and believe that their sins have been forgiven. Not by me, but by God himself through Jesus Christ. On the other hand, when Jesus says, if you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. He's speaking of the authority that he has given to you and to me to warn those who refuse to repent and believe that their sins are still reckoned to their account. They are still charged against them. Not by me, but by God and his holiness and justice. It's important, I think, to see that I don't have two messages. I don't have one message of condemnation, and I have another message of salvation. No, I just have one message with two sides to it. The announcement of the retaining of sins is just the inevitable flip side. You can't escape it. Of the good news of peace, which it is our privilege to proclaim. While the doors were shut, 
where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Come back to that picture and I ask you, it's so easy for us, especially, I think, with all the social media, and which is not healthy, right? We, we can get trapped into all the social media stuff, all the stuff everywhere that, that, that promotes and, and stirs up fear in our hearts. And that's a sin. That's a sin what we're doing. When we do that, it's sinning. But, but even apart from the social media, just opening your eyes and looking at the reality that, that we live in and the increasing hostility, fear can so easily take root in us who have not understood. Who have not understood. John emphasizes the disciples' fear of the enemies of Jesus, their authority, right? They're, they're the big people with the power. They can arrest. They can imprison. They can put to death those who follow Jesus. And again, I wonder how easy it would be for John to look at us and see the same kind of fear in us today. Maybe not literally hiding behind closed doors and yet seeing that fear taking root in our hearts. But why does John emphasize this fear? So that we can grasp more fully the greeting of Jesus. While the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he didn't, he didn't come into their midst and berate them for their fear. He didn't come in and say, I'm done with you, I'm going to start with someone new, someone better, someone who's got more faith and is, is more impressive than you are. No, he came into their midst and he proclaimed to them the gospel. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so we see the transformation that this peace is about to work in the disciples. To go from a group hiding out to a group going out. No matter how dark then the world ever gets, no matter how much tribulation we may face in the world, the fact remains. Here is the fact. And we are people of facts, right, as Christians. Not to be ruled by our feelings. The fact remains. We live now in the age of eschatological salvation and therefore in the age of God's eschatological peace. That means no matter how dark the world gets, no matter how much tribulation we may face in the world, this world will always be the arena for the bold proclamation of the good news of this peace. Don't look at this world as a lost cause. We don't, we don't look at this world as like, okay, let's just hunker down and survive until the end. No, we look at this world as the arena for proclaiming what? The gospel of peace. We are never defeatists because we are never defeated. We are not fearful. Because in fact, it is not the world that has the true authority and power at all. Instead, Jesus has given the true authority and power to us. 
And he sent us into the world to exercise that authority and to exercise that power through the proclamation of the gospel of his peace. How wonderful it is to know that the words of the risen Jesus to his first disciples, the words he first spoke to them, are still in your handout. His words to us today and every day, every day. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the peace that has come with the arrival of your salvation. We thank you that this peace is our present possession, that we have it, that it has been given to us and that none can take it away. That we have in, as a matter, a point of fact, wholeness, the ultimate well-being of those who have been forgiven of our transgressions, forgiven of our sins, welcomed in to the kingdom of your beloved Son, that our enemy, the devil, has been already cast out, that death has been defeated, and that we have and know all of these things in and through our risen and ascended Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Let us know that this is not the pep talk that that loses its effect after we go from here. These are the truths that we have come to lay hold of by faith through your spirit. And so in the light of all these things, we understand the meaning of Jesus' words to his disciples and the meaning of his words to us when he first proclaimed the gospel in all its fullness. In just these words, peace be with you. And Lord, may that peace do its transforming work in us today, tomorrow, every day. Being the antidote to all fear, turmoil, and the source of all courage and boldness. How beautiful, Lord, are the feet of those who announce good news of peace. Father, I pray that should anyone here not yet have this peace, they would come even this morning to embrace with a humble heart the salvation that Jesus has brought to us through his sufferings on the cross in our place, through his resurrection, and even now as he sits at your right hand interceding for us, ruling over us, and ordering all things for the day of his return when he takes us to himself. Lord, for us who have embraced Christ as Savior and who have this peace, Lord, help us then to live as people who have it. To not be defeatists, because we are not defeated. But to be bold and courageous, because you have given not to the world, but to us the true authority and the true power of the kingdom of our risen Savior. 
Lord, show us by your spirit the ways that these things work out. Even in our parenting. In our home relationships. In our, in our work environments. And when behind closed, behind closed doors when no one sees us. Show us what it looks like to live out the good news of this peace. We pray these things, praying now too that you would, you would prepare our hearts and that you have been preparing our hearts throughout this entire morning to receive of this meal that you have, that you have provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen.